When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, part three of an ongoing series on American crimes and cover-ups, Woodrow Wilson, World War I, and the creation of the Federal Reserve. When they got the Federal Reserve Act passed in 1913, Andrew Jackson and Thomas Jefferson, uh, wherever they were, couldn't have been too happy because it was the final defeat for the uh, original Democrats who fought so valiantly against having a central bank. This podcast is brought to you by Canada's decontamination specialists, Crime and Trauma Scene Cleaners. Crime and Trauma Scene Cleaners is committed to helping people when tragedy strikes. Their objective is to restore safety to an environment in the most professional and discreet manner possible. To contact Crime and Trauma Scene Cleaners, visit crimescenecleaners.ca. Call 1-866-724-0800, 1-866-724-0800, or email them at info at crimescenecleaners.ca Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres Pursuing the truth wherever it leads Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Monday. Author, rogue historian Don Jeffries is standing by to deliver the history we were never taught in school. Before that, another reminder, there will be a free seminar on reverse speech happening here in Toronto on Saturday, October the 26th at Metamorphosis Greek Orthodox Church, 40 Donlins Avenue. That's just steps from the Donlins subway station. The workshop begins at 11 a.m. and that goes to 1 p.m. That'll be run by Christian Dicadur, co-host of Reverse Speech Radio. And then at 2 p.m., I'll introduce 
David John Oates, the discoverer of reverse speech and co-host of Reverse Speech Radio. He'll play loads of amazing reversals from politicians to historical figures, notorious criminals. Again, Saturday, October 26th, the workshop, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. And then from 2 to 4, David John Oates, the discoverer of reverse speech all the way from Australia. And it's a free event, folks. 40 Donlins Avenue, Metamorphosis, Greek Orthodox Church here in Toronto. Hope to see you there. Well, we are slowly making our way through Don Jeffrey's encyclopedic work. Uh, this episode will focus on President Woodrow Wilson, the creation of the Federal Reserve Bank, the sinking of the Lusitania, which was really the catalyst that brought the Americans into World War I, and we'll talk about the suspicious death of President Harding. Don Jeffries has been researching the JFK assassination since the mid-1970s, when he was a teenage volunteer for Mark Lane's Citizens Committee of Inquiry. He's also very active on all the JFK assassination forums and has been a moderator on the London Spartacus Education Forum for several years. His first published book, the acclaimed 2007 novel The Unreals, has been compared to Alice in Wonderland and The Wizard of Oz. Hidden History, his first nonfiction book, was followed by Survival of the Richest, and his latest is Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics, 1776 to 1963. Don Jeffries, welcome back to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? Oh, fine, Richard. It's always a pleasure to be with you. When last we spoke several months ago, we were talking about Abraham Lincoln and then the Reconstruction period. I want to jump ahead uh, to the, uh, the the first decade or so of the 20th century. 1914, the administration of Woodrow Wilson, who was kind of an unusual guy. I mean, he was in many ways very progressive. And on the other hand, he was an avowed racist. He screened a copy of Birth of a Nation, D.W. Griffith's film, in the White House, which really glorified the Ku Klux Klan. What was going on there? Yeah, he was he was a very complicated man. I I don't know how uh, devoted he was to the old South or whatever as uh, historians now try to make him. But he did he did. But you know, people I can think we have to look back at again at, at, at the tenor of the times. Uh, Birth of a Nation was a cinematic achievement, and you know, even today, there's uh, you know, they certainly technically. It was just you know it was so many advances in, in that movie, and um, certainly uh, you know D. W. Griffith deserves a lot of credit for that. But um, the, I think even at that time we saw the uh, the effect of what what we call the lost cause, and that's why when we talk about removing the Confederate statues and all this nonsense they have now, most of those were built decades after the Civil War, and it was along the time when the the Klan had become powerful and had become violent and had been repudiated by Nathan Bedford Forrest and Robert E. Lee and, and a lot of the people that originally thought that there was a need for something to try to take back control um, of their lives from uh, you know what, what was really a tyranny. And um, they, they never envisioned lynchings and things like that. But by the time Birth of a Nation came around, uh, it, it, we, they had incorporated a very strange uh, amalgamation. And we saw that again up until really uh thomas de lorenzo and people like that started writing critically about lincoln because these were these were southern scholars that were and they were kind of glorifying the lost cause in the old south but they didn't criticize lincoln 
at all, who was the man, obviously, who, who really pushed the war and was responsible more than anybody else for what happened during that war. And you can see, even in Birth of a Nation, it, it certainly glorifies the Klan and makes them heroic. But Lincoln is not seen as a villain. In fact, he's kind of portrayed sympathetically in that movie. So already at that time, they were kind of mixing things and revisionist history was going on. And Woodrow Wilson uh, maybe uh, was more susceptible to something like that where he wasn't going to repudiate Abraham Lincoln, certainly. No one was willing to do that at that point. But um, certainly, so he he didn't catch any flack. And this is decades later, because I don't think Birth of a Nation was seen as racist for a very long time, really. I don't don't even know when when it would be. Again, I think when the country started drifting uh, towards the establishment left and everything became racist, then that certainly was an easy target. But I think D.W. Griffin probably would be horrified if he was around (laughs) to be called racist. But but you're right, Wilson, Wilson was a strange guy because certainly he was a, one of the first globalists in the American scene. He was, uh, had a dream of the League of Nations, which, of course, uh, ended up being the United Nations. And he was more than happy, although he promised, much as Franklin Roosevelt would uh, a generation later, he promised not to get us involved in the European war. He, uh, behind the scenes, he did everything he could to get us involved. And his administration was working for that, with the exception of Secretary of State Williams Jennings Bryant who, as you know from the book, I, I write very favorably about. Uh, I mean, he's not, not quite up to Huey Long level, but he was a genuine populist, and he bitterly opposed getting in the war. And uh, But Wilson wasn't going to listen to him. And so, yeah, Lincoln was a, 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 Wilson was a very strange combination of somebody who certainly was a racist in our modern eyes, because he, I, I, I think I quote in there where he had uh, black leaders that came to the White House, and he just kind of... <laughs> He kind of was very crude to them and mean to them, and he pretty much publicly said something like, if the colored people don't want to vote for me, then they don't have to vote for me or something. So he was a a very strange guy, but certainly his his pushing us into World War I, and uh, as you know, I write about... uh, he basically uh, reignited the Alien Sedition Acts that were uh, so... uh, you know, unfavorable to, to most of the American people under uh, President John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. You know, one of the first things he did, he criticized them and dismantled that. But basically, Wilson restored the Alien and Sedition Acts because he threw tons and tons of people into not tons of tons, but he, he threw lots of World uh, World War One protesters, and there were a lot more of them than there would be in World War Two because I think that time they recognized um, uh, there was not not as much public opposition against that war. Uh, because really the patriotism thing really rallied in there. But in World War One, that wasn't the case. And uh, you had people like Eugene Yeb, Eugene Debs, who was a kind of a perennial candidate for president as a socialist. It was thrown in jail. It was later wasn't released until Warren Hardin, of all people, uh, released him. But I, I wrote in there, one of the things I learned writing this book was that uh, the, the, the expression that we've heard, all heard so often about, you know, well, you have freedom of speech, but you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Right. That came from that era, and it came from a decision by Oliver Wendell Holmes, the you know, beloved hero of the liberal establishment. He wrote the, uh, the opinion that said, well, you know, we, this, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. So he abridged free speech, and it was in response to uh, people uh, like Eugene Debs and all the other protesters questioning the uh, constitutionality of throwing them into prison. So basically, that statement, when people hear that now, remember what it's there. It was basically it was used to justify throwing uh, World War I protesters into prison. Fascinating. Uh, to what extent is Wilson 
responsible for shaping the American interventionist foreign policy going forward into the 20th century. And to what extent is was that philosophy, uh, the idea of spreading American uh, values, exceptionalism uh, around the world, a progressive idea? Well, I think that that really began with, with Teddy Roosevelt. And I think Wilson was just, a, you know, these things are, it's kind of a grad, what I call gradualism. Abraham Lincoln's uh, imperialism was just extended to uh, the Union. He didn't, I don't think he had any grandiose plans to go, you know, uh, international. Maybe he did, I don't know. But I don't want to say any proof of that. But Teddy Roosevelt was the first imperialist. You know, he wanted to, he's one of, was the, one of the loudest voices to push this into the uh, Spanish-American War of 1898. And that's when we really took the first step. World War I was a giant step. But the, the Spanish-American War of 1898 was a huge line in the sand that we crossed because it was at that time, you know, we decided that, hey, we had to, we, we had to go get involved in Cuba, even though it wasn't p- part of America, that we had interest there in people like Teddy Roosevelt who were consistently, and again, I, I blame the media for this progressive thing, that you had genuine uh, progressives like the Populist Party, Thomas Weaver and people like that in the 1890s, and then later Robert La Follette, William Jennings Bryan. There were real populists out there that, that were really progressive. But uh, Teddy Roosevelt had, I mean, I go into all these racist comments he made. I mean, he, you know, he, he did everything but say every day, every, uh, every, uh, the only good Indian is a dead Indian. I think he said nine times out of 10, that's true. But somehow this guy has a uh, progressive reputation. And uh, also, obviously, he loved war more than you know, maybe any president, I guess, we've ever, that we've ever had, maybe. And, uh, but once we made that step and we committed to fighting that war internationally, and the American people put out, and it was the first false flag we saw there, too, the sinking of the Maine, which even established historians uh, pretty much acknowledge now was not the way it was portrayed, and it certainly wasn't, but it was a pretext to get us into war. And then in World War I, Woodrow Wilson took the next step, and the people, the, 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 the budding internationalists, and of course Wilson had, they were even then, the media was dishonestly portraying this war-loving faction who wanted to go global and take control away from, you know, Thomas Jefferson always taught that that, govern is be- that government is best which governs the least. And it was always a kind of a liberal idea, a classical liberal idea that you wanted a decent, you wanted things decentralized. You, and of course, the populists have always believed, we believe that you can't have, you don't want too much concentrated power anywhere. And that's what the separation of powers was about. I mean, that was a kind of a populist idea. Let's separate the power so that you can't have a really fanatically imperial president. You shouldn't, but Lincoln shattered that. You can't, uh, you know, you want an imperialist, if, if somehow we ever got an imperialist legislative body, which we've never had, it's always been the weakest of the three branches, uh, the executive and the judicial could check that. And of course, you don't want a, a runaway judiciary. And unfortunately, we lost that as well, because we've had a, a judiciary that has been legislating uh, for a very long time. But Wilson... Unfairly, I think, you know, I, I think when you when, you, when people call him a progressive, just like they call Roosevelt a progressive, they're uh, demeaning the term. I don't think it's an accurate portrayal of what he was because he, he was a, a war lover and he was uh, he wanted to uh, he did not abide by the Constitution because he wanted to get America. If he could, he wanted to get us in the League of Nations. And that's really where the idea where you had right wing people that started talking and warning about the. Uh, 
uh, one world government and all that. That all sprang really from the Wilson era because Wilson was the first one to go public with this. And I think it was, uh, oh God, it was a, I want to say uh, it's an early day politician that said something like Wilson wants to be president of the world or something like that. And um, I think he did have those grandiose claims. And I, I don't know what would have happened. You know, of course, then you have that kind of very strange ending to his administration where he got very sick and for all intents and purposes, his wife ran the country. Right. Edith, and, the and, first female president. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, um, you know, really very, uh, very curious times, but a very significant time. And as you know, I, I write a lot. This is when uh, uh, General Smedley Butler, one of my all-time great heroes, really first came to prominence. And he wrote the fantastic pamphlet, War is a Racket. And he wrote that. I urge everyone to try to read that. It was. It should have been the new common sense you know, the Thomas Paine common sense yeah, uh, yes. of that era. It was that kind of thing, a pamphlet, very powerful. But this was a guy, a general, obviously the top of the military chain, and he talked, his quotes are incredible. I mean, I use this quote about war is never about enemies. It's always about opportunities for profit. I use that all the time. And uh, he, he talked about all the money he made for United Fruit and all these other corporations all over the world. And he realized what he was doing. In many ways, he had Fletcher Prouty, later would kind of echo some of those same comments about what he saw on the Joint Chiefs of Staff. But, but, uh, That's the Donald Sutherland character, uh, Mr. X, for, yes. those, for those who, who watch uh, Oliver Stone's JFK. Exactly. Uh, that was I want to mention uh, this, an interesting character that uh, is associated with the Wilson administration, and that is uh, a Colonel House. Edward M. House, this American diplomat, politician, and advisor to Wilson. Uh, he almost seems, comes across from what I've read, as a bit of a Svengali character. How much control did he have over uh, Wilson and, and, and how much influence? Well, he certainly seemed to have a lot of influence over him. And, and the first thing to understand about him is that he wasn't a colonel. I mean, the name was kind of a ceremonial title. Which yeah, like is, Colonel uh, Tom Parker. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, <laughs> Exactly. And maybe, you know, very similar to him. I, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I have some, some some quotes from him in the book, but I think he, you might even look at him as maybe being the first kind of character around a president that would later become uh, very familiar to administrations down the line, especially when you think of people like Henry Kissinger and Zygmunt Brzezinski that uh, kind of had the president's ears and were giving him constantly uh, disastrous advice. You know, kind of pushed him into war, pushed him into meddling and, and everything. And the House, uh, uh, obviously a diehard internationalist, and was pushing this disastrous, uh, uh, you know, entrance into the war. And we can saw with, I mean, it, it, people, when we talk about, uh, to this day, people will still defend what they call the good wars. And, I, and hopefully in this book, I, I've, I've proven that, you know, Ben Franklin's credo about there's no such thing as a good war or a bad peace is, uh, you know, very true. But... Most people still think of the Civil War and World War II as good wars, wars we couldn't have avoided because we were definitely the good guys in, that, you know, that, in, that, in those wars. But no one, not even the most diehard international, you know, establishment figure can possibly defend World War I. No one can tell you it was about, you know, Archduke, Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated and somehow millions of people died because of that. And it made no sense. And so many awful precedents were set that we would see them come to fruition in World War II when this this dastardly 
what I call McPatriotism. You know, it was born this fast food patriotism where, and it was born in World War One with the with the birth of this hideous Uncle Sam figure. Most people don't realize psychologically what a jump that was, because you know we fought a revolution, uh, you know, against this idea of an odious, you know, an onerous government, you know, ho- ho- hovering over. And here you had a guy, Uncle Sam wants you, and pointing his finger, and. You know, our grandparents, great-grandparents bought that. And it's, you know, really to their shame. I mean, I I don't know how anybody would have bought that. And, you you know, Johnny Doughboy, Johnny Go Get Your Gun, and George M. Cohan singing his songs. All that stuff foretold what would happen in World War II when it just, things went crazy. And you had writers and poets and, and actors just joining the cause and just overtly propagandizing as well as anybody in the Soviet Union or Nazi Germany could have. But World War One, really, there's. I, I would suggest everybody read what, what Smedley Butler wrote about it because he, he eloquently describes about how the pressure that was put, and this was really the first war, I don't think you really saw that as much in the Civil War because I think every, even Americans were just kind of really sad that that was going on. But uh, World War One was the first time where there was cultural pressure. And again, you, you had the, the Hollywood, the early Hollywood campaign and all the popular songs, the Uncle Sam figure. And people really were pressured, like uh, Smedley Butler talks about, you know, if you, if you showed any kind of uh, hesitance about wanting to fight, then you were shunned by your peers. Right. You know, they basically called you a sissy. And and obviously, by the time World War II came out, I mean, you know, you, you were your entire being. And we saw that, you know, as much as I've read about the Kennedys. I mean, he, he, I love the guy. But the Kennedys, certainly, like everybody else that served in World War II, they used their World War II record. And lots of politicians, you know, went to public office pretty much based just upon the fact that they did something heroically or perceived as heroically in World War II. Right, right. Um I just want to back up a minute, and then we'll talk about the the First World War some more, but I want to just back up to December 1913 and the passage of the Federal Reserve Act. Sure. And Wilson was originally a proponent of this. I, I, I'm, this may be an apocryphal story, but I think later he, he regretted it deeply and said, you know, I've just perpetrated an incredible injustice upon the American people or something like that. It, what is that true, that he, he, that he did regret it? Well, I've heard that, but, um, you know, pretty much everybody that mattered at the time, and you could see, you had people like Nelson Aldrich, who was one of the people, and the way it took place, it was like this kind of secret meeting on Jekyll Island, and that's, that's kind of a provocative name, it's fitting, you know, <laughs> kind of, it kind of, you know, you, visions of a monster, you know, Jekyll and Hyde, Jekyll Island, Georgia, where it was, and people like Nelson Aldrich were there, and Nelson Aldrich was Nelson Rockefeller's grandfather, I believe. So you can see these people, they perpetuate themselves in office, and you had a, um, oh God, I, I'm blurring a blank now on the, uh, War, no, was it Warburg? No, Warburg. Warburg. The, Paul yeah, Warburg, think, yeah. Yeah, I think Warburg was there, and, um, uh, was it a shift? I think one of the shifts. But all these people that you would see later, later their relatives would come to power. But it was it was a banking dynasty, and clearly this was this was uh, again in all you know the past is prologue. This was the culmination of a struggle that had uh, taken place since the birth of the republic. And I describe in the book you know how the early the early years of the republic were basically spent m- much of the. Uh, the infighting were between the Jeffersonians, who believed in a uh, 
a, less, a decentralized government and who did not want a central bank, who distrusted banks, and the Hamiltonians, who wanted a strong central bank. They wanted that central bank and believed in debt and all the, all the disastrous stuff that they won, clearly. Now, they were uh, Tom, uh, Andrew Jackson fought them mightily and um, it was the best thing about him and he was able to you know defeat the the rise of the uh of the because he had to be renewed every 20 years or something and the charter was renewed under him and then the civil war happened and they're kind of they, they just kind of i guess uh they never give up these plans the conspirators people that run things and eventually their grandiose plan was the, this federal reserve act and of course the the first thing about it to understand is how the very name itself is ca is as counterfeit as the practices <laughs> that it perpetrates, because it's nothing federal about it. It's never been a government agency. It's a private corporation, and people don't. A lot of people seem to understand it, but they let it. But really, what Richard, if if people understood when it set in motion the fractional lending, and this is the, the really the core of all the financial problems we have in America today is that awful fractional lending because the Federal Reserve set up a mechanism where member banks and all banks that are part, and it's now everything, I mean, certainly maybe not savings and loans, but certainly all banks that are part of the fractional lending system are able to lend a fraction of their reserves. And that's a very tiny fraction. It's 10%. Ron Paul thinks it's less now. But even if it's only 10%, Every time they lend money to an individual or a company, they are—they only have to have 10% of the reserves on hand. So if you ask me for 100 bucks and I only have $10, I can under, if I was a Federal Reserve Bank, I could write you a check for $100. And even though I don't, the $90 came out of where? I don't know. Thin that, air. The, it's created exactly. out of thin air. Right. And that's the big problem is how can you ever reconcile a system like that all when 90% of the money in circulation of the principal loans? Now that's, and then of course you're going to charge interest on top of that, which obviously comes out of nothing. So out of thin air. So it's, you can just see what a disastrous system it is. Why people like Ron Paul, I mean, certainly I talk in the book about, uh, uh, Lewis McFadden, who was the first critic of the uh, of the Federal Reserve, died suspiciously, not surprisingly. Wright Patman, who later fought it for a long time, and then Ron Paul was really the champion that we know and love in today's world uh, that, that fought the Fed so valiantly. But you know, it still hasn't been audited. You know, they had a partial audit done of the Fed uh, a few years back, just a partial audit, and it revealed trillions of dollars that uh, had been given to uh, banks and corporations around the world. So we can only imagine what a full audit would show. And uh, it just, just to give, give you an idea how phony the system is, Elizabeth Warren, who's made a lot of her, uh, a lot of political hay over railing against the banks, and certainly no one gets more excited about that rhetoric than I do, but I happen to know that she voted against auditing the Fed. So, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're not willing to audit the Fed, you're, you're not opposing the banks. So, uh, but again, this, when, when this fight came, there, were, there really were, uh, the populists obviously were against it. And uh, Charles Lindbergh Sr., who was the father of the famous aviator, he was one of the uh, main voices. And I have some quotes from him in the book in opposition to it. And he warned against, uh, you know, the booms and the busts that would happen. And I, I believe that uh, the institution of this bank is, is what, along with the market, what they could start doing, and we see them doing it even today, when you, you have insider trading and you understand, if you have advanced knowledge of what's happening in the stock market to certain you know, important stocks, 
it doesn't take much brilliance to make a lot of money. It's a rigged game. And uh, I think that was probably largely responsible. The Fed certainly played a large part in uh, the bubble bursting and the Great Depression that followed. And I think Huey Long recognized that because my hero, Huey Long, he was one of the very first critics of the Fed. And uh, I think he would have become even more so had he lived longer before they assassinated him. The idea, though, was the Federal Reserve was supposed to sort of even out these boom and bust cycles. And yet, since the Federal Reserve, I think we've had more depressions, recessions than any time previous. Right. And that that was the idea because you had had, I mean, I don't remember the dates, but certainly in the 1900s, you had recessions, you know, constantly, you had booms and busts, as you said. So this is how they sold it to the people. And again, they used that fake name, federal. And people, most people just assumed, okay, well, the government's going to handle it. And I guess they thought, you know, this is being taken away from the banks. This is, and I think that's how they sold it. This is, you know, kind of a, the government uh, overseeing it. And uh, instead of, you know, the biggest banks are getting together, you know, and forming this, uh, this Frankenstein monster. And, uh, but, you know, that's, that it wasn't the first time, certainly, that they've, they've uh, fooled the people. And uh, you can see how successful it's been, because despite the fact of having someone like Ron Paul that made it his issue, and uh, even somebody like Trump, who still calls out the Fed, he never does anything about it, uh, you know, predictably, but they're, you know, Bernie Sanders has lots of people. They understand it, but nothing ever happens. You know, they still run the show. And um, that's why I said, really, when, when they got the Federal Reserve Act passed in 1913, uh, Andrew Jackson and, and uh, Thomas Jefferson, uh, wherever they were, couldn't have been too happy because it was the final defeat, you know, for the, for the uh, original Democrats who fought so valiantly against having a central bank. More of my conversation with rogue historian Don Jeffries when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. It's time to welcome back Colleen Forgus, our certified nutritional therapy consultant, and she manages the full script dispensary at strangeplanet.ca. Welcome back, Colleen. How are you? Great, Richard. Thank you. October is Breast Wellness Month. What do we have on the full script dispensary for breast health? We have a product called Pectisol C. This is derived from citrus pectin, and it's excellent for supporting cellular health. So I definitely recommend this product for breast wellness. It also is great for prostate, lung health, all of the cells throughout the body. And also you have some tips for Breast Wellness Month. Right. I I wanted to just give a couple of quick tips to women out there. As much as we can, avoid wearing underwire bras. There's a lot of great new bras out there that don't include underwire, so I would suggest those. I often see women tucking their cell phone into their bras. That would definitely be something we want to avoid, minimize radiation exposure. I would include a lot of sulfur-based vegetables in the diet, so things like onions, garlic, sauerkraut and minimize soy products in the diet. They just produce excess estrogen, and it's just not something I would recommend for breast wellness. All right, Colleen, we'll talk again next week. Thanks so much. Thanks, Richard. Full script dispensary. Don't forget, all orders receive 10% off. Just go to strangeplanet.ca and click on the full script dispensary button. Full script, nature grade, science made. These products have not been assessed by the FDA and are not intended to treat, cure, or diagnose. If you have a medical concern, please consult your health care provider. The truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. 
Then it is violently opposed. Finally, it is accepted as self-evident. Let me just read that again. I know what that means. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Don Jeffries, the author of Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics, 1776 to 1963, is here. Let's uh, circle back to the beginning of World War I. And, and uh, Britain desperately wanted the Americans in. American sentiment was no. And... Then, of course, in May of 1915, we had the sinking of the uh, Lusitania, German U-boats. They were uh, waging submarine war against the UK because it was a, a naval blockade. To what extent was this a false flag? Well, I mean, they, they, I mean, I, I describe in the book how they basically uh, they, they had warned, the Germans had warned uh, ships out of that area. And uh, they understood that when and a young Winston Churchill was involved, already the beginning of his, his career of lifelong corruption. And um, people like a young Franklin Roosevelt, assistant secretary of the Navy, pushing very hard for us to be in the war. And these are these are what you find in the establishment liberals backgrounds is that they they are for every war. They all they're never for peace. Whereas a Williams Jennings Bryant, a real liberal, on the other hand, uh, was against us going into, but this is certainly, and I think the, even the historians, much as they do with the Maine in 1898, have pretty much acknowledged, yeah, the Louisiana wasn't sabotaged by the Germans. This was, this was uh, not something that uh, should have precipitated us into in, in going into war. But I think they realized, they recognized how well remember the Maine to hell with Spain worked in 1898, so they did almost an exact copy of that, sinking a Louisiana and. Uh, I guess they rile up enough. I mean, I, I still don't think there was really that much American support among the public for it. And it certainly would, would work much better in World War II with the Pearl Harbor false flag, because that, you know, in that case, they just obliterated all, you know, pretty much, it was significant opposition to World War II at that time, the America First Committee and all those people. And uh, as soon as that happened, the sneak attack, uh, it, it was gone. You were, you, you literally, you were a pariah if you if you dared, you know, say right. anything. There were, it. I mean, it was ostensibly a passenger ship, but didn't they later find, wasn't there a, a salvage operation many, many, many decades later, didn't they found that there were, in fact, as the Germans had always claimed, armaments aboard the Lusitania? Yes, yes. And, 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 but, you know, that's, that may get reported decades later, but it's, by that time, it's, it's the myth that remains. It's like, for, you know, for, we see it even today, like that, we, these hate crime hoaxes. The, the, you're like, the, they just had the little girl, the, the black girl that supposedly claimed all the white kids to cut her hair off or something earlier. And then now it's been acknowledged, she, she admits she made it up. So, but what happens is all that initial coverage is what the public remembers. They, they don't really remember, oh, that never happened. And I think that on a grander scale, that's what happens in something like the sinking of the Louisiana, is that people think, okay, well, that's why we had to get involved in World War One, and they, they just don't don't place as much credence. And okay, decades later, you know, they admitted that uh, the Germans, you know, were telling the truth about this, and that uh, it shouldn't have uh, been our way to get into, uh, our entrance into World War One, because the important thing, obviously, is that the reason for false flags, for any false flags, is that the people, the leaders. The American leadership uh, wants to get involved in these wars, and they know that this is the easiest way to sell them. Because, you know, if you just tell people, well, you know, Archbishop, <laughs> Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated, okay, well, most Americans, I'm sure, don't even know who he was, and uh, that's not going to work. 
And, you know, you can talk about the, uh, I guess they already had the propaganda building up them, or I guess they were calling them the Huns, you know, that kind of thing, which later become the Krauts and, you know, then the dirty, sneaky, rotten Japs. And that, that kind of uh, ethnic, you know, prejudice was used to try to, uh, you know, and, and of course the, the tales of what, I'm sure if you go back to World War I era, you can find the same kind of demonization of enemies, and that's a theme of my book, is that these enemies are, and I, it, it probably goes on in the other countries too, I don't know, I don't live in those countries, but I do know what Americans do, and Americans are always sold this idea that there's either a demonic leader, as in the case of Hitler, or later Saddam Hussein, Osama bin Laden, something like that, or they're just in World War One's case, there's just, you know, these dirty Huns, they're dirty krauts, and they're, you know, they're bayoneting babies and, you know, they're always doing something to babies and children. They, they yeah. know that works. It's, it's like the Iraqis uh, with yeah. the, the incubators. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah, they don't, they don't, they don't really, I mean, they update things a little bit. They throw the incubator thing, but it's the same propaganda and uh, it works. It works over and over again. And uh, it's yep. shameful. It the other thing work. about the Lusitania was, didn't the German government at the time or uh, their diplomats, didn't they take out ads in the New York Times yes. warning Americans not to get on the Lusitania? Yes, yes. I mean, they publicly told them. And what, how many Americans, I mean, I, I put that in the book and I, I don't know how many Americans know that and I don't know how many it matters to. But I, mean, I know, for instance, I think I quote in the book from, I think it's the granddaughter of... Uh, Oh God, I can't. I can't remember the guy's name. It's one of the one of the figures I think from Britain that was in. Uh, I can't remember the name now. It's escaping me. But but she has become now kind of. A, she wrote a book about saying how what a mistake it was. The entire World War One thing was it was fought for nothing, and uh, so even people that are related to the figures who pushed it can see this in uh, in hindsight. But we don't. We don't learn from uh, these mistakes, Richard, and, and because I don't think they were just mistakes. I mean, I think they're, these things are planned because if they weren't planned and they weren't coordinated, then we would learn. But you can see what happened after World War One. What happened is, as soon as it was, uh, and we, you know, people don't realize what a an onerous burden this was on on uh, Germany. But how many people know? I couldn't believe when I found it out that Germany didn't stop paying reparations from World War One. Until 2010. Right, I, I read that. Yeah, amazing. I mean, that's that's amazing. I mean, that's World War One. So these financial and we saw, you know, and I obviously talk about that maybe the next show a lot about Nuremberg when they decided to actually try the losers, unprecedented. I mean, nobody nobody ever thought of let's take the losers that we just beat, the, let's take the vanquished to court, the victors, and uh, but this is another way of doing it where let's let's penalize them, let's find them, let's extort them. After we defeat them, you're going to pay us money. And that's what they did with the Germans. And that's why Hitler was able to, and of course, I think he's, again, I think all these people, and we saw, there's a book called The Wall Street and the Rise of Hitler, much as there's a book called Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution, both written by Antony Sutton. Wonderful books, very documented and shows that, uh, you know, American uh, corporations had a vested interest in the Bolsheviks coming to power and had a vested interest in backing Hitler and maneuvering him into uh into the position he came to achieve but certainly after world war one germany was so devastated i mean their economy was worse than we would be in the great depression and a lot of that was because of the owner's restrictions of the versailles treaty of versailles in which case in which basically they were just slapped and and all these financial again these these fines and these uh 
these reparations that they were forced to pay that didn't end until 2010. Right. It gave Hitler the grievance uh, grievances exactly. that he needed to, 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 to rise to power. Exactly. Uh, just about out of time here, but I just want to whip ahead a little bit to another presidency, and that's uh, um, the strange death of Warren G. Harding. Yeah. Uh, just set the just set the scene for us. He's in San Francisco at the time, I believe, right? Yeah. Well, he was he was on this uh, kind of a, a cruise, I guess. He was uh, touring around and, and with his uh, wife, and uh, dies very mysteriously. And there's, I mean, I I write a lot about it in the book, and I. It's hard really to figure out what we, there's been several causes listed. It's what killed him and heart attack, I mean, stroke, stomach, uh, he gets poisoned. I mean, and of course, the the main thing here is that there was no autopsy performed. And his wife looks certainly looks suspicious because she's the one that demanded there not be an autopsy. And um, she kind of set the precedent there because afterwards, Calvin Coolidge would later die very suddenly, no autopsy. When Franklin Roosevelt died very suddenly, no autopsy. All to the point, you know, with Joe McCarthy, which I think he died under suspicious circumstances, no autopsy. So you find lots of these people that are prominent. When they die like that, it was certainly, I think, uh, Americans in history has a right to, to know how they died. I mean, I, I, I point out about all these deaths of people where it's kind of it happens in the celebrity world, too. A lot of entertainers where it's kind of unsure, unclear. I mean, would we be satisfied with our loved ones? dying and we didn't know why and so you know years later it was well how did you know how did uncle joe died well i don't know it could have been a heart attack could have been food poisoning we're not really sure i mean that really doesn't happen outside of the world of politics and entertainment uh very strange there was a lot of strange elements to that i mean i don't I, harding uh i don't know how good of a guy he was but i think he has been maligned by history a little bit i think that teapot dome scandal was uh, a, a bit like Watergate, where I think it was exaggerated, and I'm not sure uh, how, what kind of, I think it was kind of garden variety corruption, maybe, if anything. And there was a few strange deaths I listed there, and uh, and there's the guy Gaston Means, who uh, wrote uh, The Strange Death of President Harding. And I talk about, I believe he, he ended up being in prison. I think he died in prison, but, you know, he was the only one who was questioning it. And uh, shockingly, you know, he died. And it was later his reputation was smeared and they, they, they tried to claim he was uh, something that he, I, I don't believe he was. But there were questions raised at the time, certainly. But America was, you know, we were talking about we're entering the Roaring Twenties, which was uh, one of the most uh, exciting and happy periods in American history, and I think people were just kind of, uh, you know, doing the Charleston and, you know, and going to speakeasies, and uh, they really had no, they were they were letting the good times roll until everything collapsed uh, uh, into the Great Depression, but, uh, so they didn't ask the questions they should have, been even then, you know, you can see in the early days, uh, there, there weren't any investigate, there weren't any journalists asking the questions they should have said. The Gaston Means, that guy was apparently a con man. He's the only one that really questioned it and wrote a book about it, and uh, there weren't any investigative piece. Certainly, the New York Times, Washington Post, or uh, not, nobody like that was questioning it. San Francisco Chronicle or some of the big papers out in San Francisco, none of them were. And uh, people just kind of, oh well, you know, it's a bad thing. You know, he he died. He was only, I think, late fifties. And right, he was know. he was a Republican, uh, and yes. one of the more popular presidents uh, yes. to that time. Do you think his his suspicious death may have had anything to do with his opposition to the League of Nations. Well, I mean, certainly you, you, you could look at it that way. I mean, there, there, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't uh, 
whatever he was, and I'm not saying he certainly wasn't a populist. I, I don't know that he was a good guy, but he wasn't on that team. He didn't appear to be playing for the internationalists, the globalists, whatever you want to call them. Yeah, he didn't support the League of Nations. He, uh, I don't, I know he had he had let Eugene Debs out of prison, which Woodrow Wilson didn't do, and uh, you know, which and Debs is a socialist, and here you know Harding was a uh, a Republican. Uh, he was a ladies' man. You know, he was known to womanize, and uh, I don't know, maybe that's why, I mean, it could be something as mundane as his wife just got tired of his, of his womanizing and poisoned him, but then his wife dies very mysteriously, too, as does the doctor involved, and I, I talked about it. they both died within a couple of months of each other, and again, there's not, it's really unclear what killed any of them, so it's, these are the kind of things that intrigue me, because these are important people, and there really shouldn't be those kind of questions left behind for armchair historians like me because I, I seem to be the only one asking these questions no one mm. no everyone else is kind of accepting it but um yeah it's very strange uh, certainly uh, one of the strangest deaths of uh, maybe the strangest death of a president we've ever had was warren harding what about uh because it was during his tenure that uh, prohibition came in i believe right the, the, the 18th yeah. amendment where he certainly supported the 18th amendment i mean is right. it is it possible that the bootleggers got to him well, I mean, again, those are, those are the kind of, I guess if they had done an investigation, and again, there wasn't, I don't know that anybody called for an investigation into it. I, I would think, especially when the when he was buried without an autopsy, um, and I would think, you'd say, okay, let's, shouldn't we try to find out this guy was the president of the United States? I mean, for all, I mean, you don't know. I mean, you could say, uh, you know, the the, uh, the political opposition engineered it. You know, who knows? I mean, there's, well, only in America we have this myth and of course we still cling to it where the rest of the world we kind of accept that there are coups we accept that politicians are killed for political reasons but in america we don't political politicians never die for political reasons according to the establishment there's always some kind of nut that does it for you know their own strange reasons or, or, or desire to be famous, although most of the time they, they deny doing it. So I, I don't know how they're going to get famous while denying it, but that's that's uh, the American mythology, and, and people uh, people buy into it. And, uh, you know, again, our, once again, it was awful mainstream media we had even then that should have been asking tons of questions, should have been probing, should have uh, demanded a congressional investigation into it. Because it was important. We did, you know, who knows what, I don't know how different the 20s would have been because Calvin Coolidge was, in retrospect, was probably one of our greatest presidents because he really didn't do anything. So he didn't mess anything up. (laughs) (laughs) And he he presided over a period of of peace, one of the few periods of peace we've ever had, and uh, of good times, you know, until... uh, you know, Herbert Hoover, kind of hapless Hoover, walked in really at the and inherited it at the at the wrong moment, and kind of uh, unfortunately was was stuck. I think unfairly because I don't know what he could have done to stop it. One of the believe it was uh, beyond his powers, and it was it was manipulated the great to happen the Great Depression. But um, these are the questions that you know the historian court historians don't ask, and uh, no mainstream journalists at the time. And that's the problem is that you have the, the twin the twin problems with trying to find true history, hidden history. And that is when these events happen, and we see it obviously today, we can see the mainstream, that there are no investigative journalists. Nobody investigates at the time. 
none of the opposition political leaders demand accountability and, and really investigate either. So it gets washed away, and again, there's there's an absurd cover story, and then the, what I call the court historians peddle that story, peddle that mythology, and they will not let go of it, and they don't want anybody like me coming along and trying to you know rain on their parade. And uh, I'm sorry, you just you just don't do it. There's there are questions in all these incidents, and that's all I'm writing about. I'm just raising the question, I'm not speculating or theorizing. I mean, you can speculate, you know, based on it, but the, the reality is a sitting president of the United States died under incredibly strange circumstances. Hmm. He wasn't that old, and he was certainly healthy enough to be womanizing, so he couldn't have been that unhealthy. And uh, he was buried very, you know, he was uh, buried without an autopsy. Well, his, and, wi- his wife insisted he not have one, in fact. She wanted yes. him embalmed immediately, so. Yes, yeah, and that was very curious. So really, she probably should have been the first suspect in any kind of investigation, but there was no investigation. So. Which is ironic because yeah. uh, Harding was an old newspaper reporter himself in a previous career. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, so he might have, you know, if if he was able to, he, he might have demanded an investigation. But unfortunately, there was there was nobody there to do that. So that's you know that's why I don't run ever run out of material to write about in these books because uh, I'm just trying to do the job that wasn't done at the time. It hasn't been done since by the, the court historians. It's uh, yeah. It's there's nothing new under the sun. It's just you know, <laughs> history just keeps repeating itself. Crimes and cover-ups in American politics, 1776 to 1963. Uh, we'll put a, a cap on uh, this episode, and we'll come back. And next time, we'll talk about uh, FDR and Pearl Harbor. Oh boy, sounds good. Okay, thanks, Don. <laughs> Thank you, Richard. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back with a few details on an upcoming episode. If you haven't visited my Strange Planet shop, what's the holdup? Just have a peek at some of these amazing, unique designs created exclusively for Strange Planet by Atomic Werewolf Studios in Arizona. A new batch of great t-shirts just arrived, including one for the uh, politically incorrect crowd, shall we say, and I'm one. It's called the Toxic Male T-shirt. And those of you concerned about protecting America's electrical grid from an EMP attack, well, there's one there for you too. Just go to strangeplanet.ca and click on the Strange Planet Shop button at the bottom of the page. Check it out, have fun, get your Christmas shopping done early, and help support my work. The Strange Planet Shop at strangeplanet.ca Coming up next time on Conspiracy Unlimited, a science writer for Time Magazine provides a brief guide to the end of the world. Asteroids, supervolcanoes, rogue robots, and more. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.